Welcome back to Third String Pod. This is a late June kind of a, a banter about baseball. So I'm sitting here with my, my consistent and reliable co-host, Zach Crippen. Zach, how you doing, my man? Happy uh, late summer, almost to the All-Star break. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, yeah, late summer. I wish it was late summer. Summer just started here, and it feels like late summer already because here in Austin, we hit 101 degrees today. The pool was crowded. Everyone's trying to stay in there to stay cool. You step outside and you're instantly drenched in sweat. It is, uh, it's hot, but I know it's probably not as hot, just more humid than, than what you have in Vegas there, right? Yeah, this this dry heat they keep telling me about. I there, there is nothing dry about a heat like this. You walk outside for 30 seconds, there's nothing dry, trust me. Um, but yeah, it's it's hot. It's showing no signs of stopping. There's no rain in the 15-day forecast either, so we are. We're in it to win it, but that means I'm sitting around watching a lot of baseball during the day when I can watch a lot of baseball movies. I, I think that's one of my favorite summer things is to watch baseball movies. Okay. What's your, what's your favorite baseball movie of all time? Oh man, this is tough. So I was watching Bull Durham last night, which is a classic. I mean, Kevin Costner. I've never seen it. It's fantastic. Um, I, for some reason though, even more than Bull Durham is I am really, really partial to little big league. Uh, you remember that one with the Minnesota Twins where the kid becomes the manager at age 12? You know, I've also never seen that one. I, it sounds like what? I need to, uh, yeah, I need to brush up on my baseball watching. Dude, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. This kid's grandfather passes away. Spoiler alert happens in the first 10 minutes. The movie is also from like 1992. So if you haven't seen it, I don't feel bad about spoiler alerts. <laughs> but uh, he becomes the owner and manager of the Minnesota Twins. And I think it was one of those as a 12 year old when I really and truly thought I could do it better than every team I was watching on ESPN. Uh, that was my dream. So little big league, number one favorite rookie of the year has got to be a close second though. I mean, pitching for the Cubs, that's the dream. Yeah. I think you're, you're onto something there. I would say in the childhood category, you got to put the sandlot uh, up there. Uh, I also liked angels in the outfield. I watched that one as yeah. a lot as a kid. That was Absolute fun. Classic more recently though. And probably in the category of actual favorite baseball movies of all time, I would say Moneyball. I know it's, it's, you know, the most recent one of them. But I just, I love that movie. I think Brad Pitt's performance is really good. How, how are you feeling about uh, Fever Pitch with Jimmy Fallon and, and the Red Sox back from the mid-2000s? How do you feel about that one? Uh, all about it. All about it. How about you? I, I love it. And and I mean, they were filming that as the Red Sox made that big run in 2004. So that, that is a fun movie. I think Drew Barrymore tends to get a lot of bad publicity for that. And I think people forget that before Jimmy Fallon was trading tweets with the president on Twitter, he was a comedic actor who couldn't <laughs> keep his seriousness on during an snl skit or a movie but i'm i'm a huge fan i'm a huge fan i'm i don't know how i feel about moneyball i i liked it with brad pitt i thought it was a little dramatized but i don't i don't know maybe moneyball is such a a staple of baseball now that i i just don't know how i feel about that movie i i really don't i love that you mentioned angels in the outfield though how shook were you when you realized that Danny Glover, who is the hero, even though he's grumpy and angels in the outfield, is also the dude cursing his way through every every movie, it seems, aside from angels in the outfield. Like, <laughs> learning that he wasn't the kid actor I thought he was was devastating yeah. to me. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, he's, he plays this, like, lovable character <laughs> in angels in the outfield. He is not lovable in many other movies. Yeah. That's, that's definitely a, mis, a miscast role for him, I think. Oh, absolutely. I, I also thought it was funny with Angels in the Outfield and Gideon. You remember how much emphasis there was on winning a pennant? Like, that's the big thing with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. Is, right. Dad, we're going to be good with your family again when the Angels win the pennant. I mean, growing right. up. It's not the World Series. It's yeah. the pennant. Yeah. Well, so, 
And I think that is one of the most interesting things about baseball that maybe we can talk about another time is for the mm-hmm. longest time, winning a pennant was everything. And now in 2018, honestly, unless you are a team who's three years ahead of your rebuild, do you care about winning a pennant? No, you care about the World Series. So it's no, I mean, ask any Dodgers fan who watched the the World Series and the whole postseason last year. They don't care that they yeah. won the NL pennant. Nobody brags about the pennant. I mean, are there are, are there even pennant rings? There might be. I don't know if there are pennant rings, but I know that nobody talks about them. You know, if the Dodgers had a night where they got their pennant rings, yeah. nobody cared. I, I agree. I agree. It's there's so many sports where the, the conference final or pennant, whatever it's going to be. It, it is such a weird tradition i mean in hockey the tradition is you don't touch your conference championship trophy because it's bad luck before you play for the stanley cup i mean that's that's how much things have changed even since the the early 90s when all these movies were big it's it's just so funny to me yeah i totally agree but this actually makes me think about the dh and i wanted to ask you about the dh today um but the american league national league differences you know the value of the pennant etc that to me just you know, the, the reason that we don't care about pennants anymore speaks to how the two leagues are becoming very similar. And of course, the biggest reason they're not the same is the designated hitters. So I know there's been a lot of conversation about this recently. I think this year we'll look back on in baseball history as the year that the conversations about removing the DH and the National League really sort of reached a fever pitch. And I think it's I think it's very possible that four years from now that the DH is going to be in the National League to stay. So what do you think about that? you have any thoughts on that? I know you're a National League guy, just like I am. Like the baseball purist side of me looks at this and thinks, oh, no, this is a terrible thing to take the pitcher out of the game because this has been a part of baseball for so long, et cetera. Sure. But there's another part of me. I saw a Ben Lindbergh piece about the DH and how we need to stop pretending that pitchers can hit. You know, the reality is, A, pitchers are more likely to get injured hitting because they don't do it frequently. They you know, you know, if any, everything from pulling a muscle running the base paths, which, you know, uh, Masahiro Tanaka, I think, pulled both his hamstrings. <laughs> I don't know how you pull both your hamstrings simultaneously uh, running the base paths, but that's something that pitchers don't do uh, on a regular basis. Uh, same thing with just swinging a bat or just stepping into the batter's box and, and facing 100 mile an hour heaters that they're not used to seeing and maybe aren't used to getting out of the way of. Yeah, yeah um, I saw that. So there's there's that that argument against it. There's also just the the fan enjoyment uh argument too you know Dylan Batances had this at bat a couple days ago where he looked like a, a little leaguer up at the plate there and there's no there's no good baseball reason why he should have been in the batter's box so the more I think about this Pete the more I'm, I'm surprising myself but I'm kind of coming around to the the view of the American League on this and I'm, I'm kind of thinking that yeah maybe the professional pitcher in 2018 doesn't really have any business being in a batter's box what do you think I disagree with you, but only from the, the baseball purist standpoint. And that's another term that for another time, um, I, I think it's just reflective of where our sport is here in 2018. And what I want to talk about here in a few minutes, we'll talk about with the evolution of the starting pitcher overall. Um, but but I, I think Major League Baseball on purpose really devolved from this concept of an American League and a National League. I mean, remember in the 90s, umpires wore AL and NL insignia on their hats, on their shirts. We had very specific umpires for very specific leagues. Um, we d- didn't we have American and National League presidents? I, I wonder if we still have that. I'm gonna have to look that up as well. I mean, uh, yeah, we we may, but again, it goes to just goes to your point. Even if we do, they're totally irrelevant. Nobody ever talks about them. They talk about the commissioner. So what I also think is so interesting is you remember how big of a deal interleague play used to be, where you got the AL and L matchups. That when that's when Major League Baseball got your Yankees, Mets, uh, your. Uh, 
Chicago team versus Chicago team with White Sox, Cubs, and it was, it was a really big deal. But now we play interleague every day of the year, it seems, that this is always going on. So I think it's just so interesting how Major League Baseball really tried to blend these two leagues, honestly, like every other professional sport does. I mean, obviously you play your, your divisional opponents more, but the NFL always pairs a division with another division, NFC, AFC. Basketball, obviously, Eastern Conference plays Western Conference, though not as much. I mean, everyone has gotten away from this very conceptual difference in leagues because that's not really what the fans want to see. The fans don't really want to watch Cardinals Cubs for the 18th time this year. They would rather see the Cubs play the White Sox, then the Cubs go play the Red Sox, then the White Sox play the Dodgers. They, the fans want to see every team at this point. And I think Major League Baseball has done a good job of that. Uh, but I, I totally agree with you that the DH is probably the biggest flux because of that. And I actually disagree just because I enjoy watching the pitching more than just the, the straight up offense. I still think there's there's a real beauty in an ace and then that ace having to go out and swing the bat, but you're absolutely right. They get hurt a heck of a lot trying to swing that bat where they're, they're pulling hamstrings, trying to run the bases or uh, obliques seem to be a big issue. I remember an Adam Wainwright injury about four or five years ago in the batter's box in April that put him out for the entire year. Um, so I, I, I don't like the DH because I, I still like the concept of every man fielding has to go hit and vice versa. Uh, but at the same time, I think baseball in their wisdom understands that they're not pulling fans like they used to and the people want to see offense. So I think it is much more likely that we get away from pitchers hitting at all than it is that we're going to get rid of the DH. I think the DH is here to stay and I think the DH will eventually migrate to the National League. Uh, but I, I still like the concept of a, of a pitcher having to go in and hit just because it adds in that other dimension. But I hadn't thought about that Little League fiasco that you're talking about from this yeah. week where it's just... It's not good baseball. I mean, how often do pitchers go out there and clearly not even want to swing the bat? But they're going to stand up there and take their three strikes and call it good. You know, um, I, and it, at, at that point, what's it even doing? Yeah, I, this is speculative on my part, but I wonder if some of these pitchers, Dylan Batances, for example, are going up there thinking, you know what, I'm going to look as foolish as I can to just send the message not so subtly that this is a dumb idea and the pitcher batting just needs to go away. Do you think that's a relief pitcher mindset more than a starting pitcher mindset? I mean, relief pitchers, you got your job. You're in there for your matchup. You're in there for two or three innings, unless you're playing for the Rays that we'll talk about here in a second. Um, but starting pitchers, I mean, they're in there for six innings and they want to be contributors. I mean, you look at the, I mean, think think about Mad Bum and what he was doing in the playoffs and, and how effective he was and how he wasn't that easy out. You think this is a starting pitcher versus relief pitcher mindset more than anything? No, I would actually think it's it's just an AL versus NL pitcher mindset. You know, I mean, look at uh, look at Chris Sales or Corey Kluber's at bats. It doesn't. You know, I don't think they're trying as hard as you know your Madison Bumgarners or your Clayton Kershaw's, both of whom yeah. have gone yard before. You know, so I think uh, I think those guys aren't used to hitting, so they're more likely to injure themselves trying to do it. And so when they go to bat, they're probably just like, okay, we're interleague play, we're in a National League park. You can't use a DH, whatever. I'm just going to go, you know, take my looks and get out of here. So so how do you fix the DH then? Do you just make this a thing in the National League and then as managers want to use it, they can? I mean, in theory, if you have a, a pitcher who's raking, you could DH for your left fielder. You could DH for your fantastic shortstop who can't do anything besides hit ground balls to second. I mean, is that what we do that we just put the DH in both leagues and give managers total autonomy? Yeah, I think that's certainly one possibility. I think there's, there's maybe a way to placate both sides you know the, the side who says we need dhs in the game because pitchers hitting is not exciting because pitchers can't hit and then of course the other side that says no pitchers hitting is an integral part of the game because there's strategy around that you have to factor in this basically this giant hole in your lineup that's going to be more often than not an automatic out etc um i think there might be a way to to maybe meet 
both of those. And, you know, I, I had this one idea that could just be a terrible idea. So just give me your thoughts on this, Pete. But yes, I was wondering if a terrible idea, <laughs> it's, it's probably really terrible. Like the more I think about it, the more <laughs> I, I just think this is probably, you know, this would probably never work. But I was just thinking, what if what if both leagues had a designated hitter, but that every time a pitcher was changed, the DH had to be changed too. in other words, the the pitcher would normally bat, right? The designated hitter is the hitter who is designated to bat for the pitcher. And so you would basically link that designated hitter with that pitcher. So uh, J.D. Martinez, for example, is Chris Sale's designated hitter. Not not the pitcher's designated hitter, but Chris Sale's designated hitter. So that when you pull Chris Sale after five or six innings, you also have to pull J.D. Martinez and dig a little bit deeper into your bench. So you're going to, you know, you're going to have a new designated hitter for your new reliever who will be uh, probably not as prolific as J.D. Martinez. And it emphasizes some offensive depth that you need to have on your bench as well. Is that a terrible idea or could I be possibly onto something? I think you're onto something and making it not a free pass, which honestly is what the DH feels to me as a National League fan. It, it kind of feels like a free pass. So right. I like that there's some layer of retribution. Right. I don't think any owner or any rules committee is going to go for it just because there is that that retribution. I wouldn't be surprised if Major League Baseball wanted something like that if it wasn't necessarily tied right. to that relief pitcher as much as just any player you have to I I don't know. I I like it because it holds teams accountable, but I don't think there's any way the the owners would buy into it. I really don't because they want offense. They they don't want the JD Martinez coming out. They want again that that run of the mill shortstop who's not doing anything to to be the guy who who's on the hook and they can they can put the big bopper in. So I like the idea. I don't know if it's if it's going to fly, but I like that it's not just a free pass to put in your biggest bat in the most optimum situation. I like that it still uses matchups. Yeah, you know, I think the other the other potential advantage that a plan like this would have, and I think there are a lot of rough edges to this version of it that would need to be refined. Um, you know, even maybe a system where just the, you know, only your starting pitcher is linked to a certain designated hitter. So once you pull your starter, you can add a different designated header, you know, that, 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 and, and that designated hitter can stay in the game for all subsequent yeah. relievers, you know, something like that. Kind of like a different double switch type mentality. Right, right exactly. Okay. Yeah. But you know, one thing I think that could be good about this is that it would effectively limit your use of pitchers as well. And this is something that Buster only has brought up uh, with respect to pace of play issues. Because this year, more than any other year, and it's sort of increased every year for the past five years or so, we're seeing so many relievers. You know, it's the the parade of relievers is the term that analysts use. Um, you know, Gabe Kapler, for example, was setting records at the beginning of the season for most pitchers used in the first 10 games of the season. And it was some absurdly high number that uh, really sounded beyond belief. So, you know, gone with, if you if you somehow came up with a, a penalty like removing your designated hitter for making all these pitcher switches, you could potentially create enough of a disincentive to stop the parade of relievers or at least slow it. And so you'd have you'd have quicker, more efficient games in that sense too. Yeah, I I think that is I think that's valid. So I'm I'm looking at the stats just for this year with pace of play. You know this is a topic I like to talk about. So this creation of limited mound visits has taken a lot of spares. Um I, I can't come across a team right now as I'm searching who has used all of their mound visits for the year, which I think is interesting because last year teams were averaging about 7.4 mound visits, and now this year it's down to 3.9. So you almost cut it in half. No one's close now, so it all set because it's a limit. People are being a lot more judicious. Maybe that's maybe just an accumulation of factors, but the, the speed of the game is is down six minutes, which when you multiply that by 162, that's a big difference in, in terms of time we're giving back to fans, which I think is important. So I 
I like the idea of imposing some kind of restrictions just for the fact that I think the game has gotten a little ridiculous with the parade of relievers. And I blame Tony La Russa in 2009, 2010, 2011 for this more than anyone else when he really was aggressive with his lefty-lefty, righty-righty matchups mentality. But overall, I think Sabermetrics has played into that. I think Moneyball has played into that. Uh, and I think the fact that the rosters expand in September and October seems to be all about how long can we make games. I mean, you look at some of those playoff games in the 2017 season. They were just ridiculous. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of that that Nationals-Cubs game that went for five and a half hours, and it didn't even go to extras. So I, I think baseball, I, I think they have to do something to at least put it in the minds of the players that you need to be more efficient, and as well as the managers, you need to be more efficient and you need to be more deliberate in how you, you execute your daily ops. Right. I think we can debate the pitch clock at a later time since that didn't happen this year. Obviously, I'm for it based on what I was writing on Medium. I know that a lot of people who listen to us are not for it based on what I've heard, uh, but that might be a debate for another time. But I think baseball has to keep their foot on the gas with trying to vector these teams as much as possible to keep the game quick. You know, another thing I'll add on that is uh, Commissioner Manfred has been pretty vocal about trying out some of these pace of play things like pitch clocks, like starting the runner on second base in extra innings, starting those things in the minors to, to see how they work. And I actually think that's a really good idea when, when the, especially this, the runner on second base and the start of extra innings, or I think it was in the top of the 11th inning, they'd start with a runner on second base, right? Yeah. When that was first announced as something they'd try in the minors, I thought that was just a really dumb idea. And, you know, I had all the hot takes you'd imagine from someone who really appreciates the way I've always known the game to be played, right? It's like, this is, you're ruining baseball. This is not how baseball has ever been played. You're changing the whole dynamics in the 11th inning. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized you know, we're not even talking about a major league game. We're talking about a minor league game. And these are games where the stakes for the teams are very low. Like, you know, you don't hear people talk about their their national championship triple A season, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so the stakes for the actual teams are really low. The stakes for the fans who are attending are really low. But the stakes for the individual players are high in the sense that, you know, whether or not that player gets injured could have career-defining impacts on their life. Um and so for that reason, I think it makes sense to just try to shorten minor league games. And on top of that, minor league baseball players are paid peanuts. They're, they're paid almost nothing. I mean, it, it's uh, it's borderline criminal how much these guys are underpaid. And so, you know, not requiring them to play these marathon 16, 17, 18, 18 games and trying to find ways to shorten those games to me makes a lot of sense. Um, the pitch clock maybe uh, makes less sense because I think there's some some more uncertain guesswork going into that in terms of how pitch clocks can even affect pitcher health, right? How, how much does the time in between pitches affect a, a pitcher's risk of injury? And is it the case that less time could increase that risk? We don't really know yet. I think we're trying to gather that data. Um, but, you know, certainly certainly other things to speed up the game, like that runner on second base idea, could be good, especially at the minor league levels and at, at other levels. You know, the same thing goes for, for college and little league baseball, too. Major league, I think, is a different story, but I think at least at the lower levels, it's a good idea. Fair enough. So while we're on the topic of controversial topics... Um, since it's been a little slower week in baseball, I'd like to to pick your brain on something that I've been here over the last couple of weeks uh, as I'm playing a lot of catch up with my East Coast games living here on the West Coast. Right. Um, yeah, you're a West Coaster now. Boy, it is weird that at 945 at night, I am lucky to have two games I can find on MLB.tv. It is, it is weird, but I get all the highlights, which is nice. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the Tampa Bay Rays. So this team was supposed to be bad this year. Uh, they've been, I'd say, not bad, but mediocre. Um. Doing something interesting. So are you 
keeping track of what they're doing with their starting rotation two out of five yes. days a week ish. Have you have you seen this trick? Yes. So for anyone who anyone who's not watching the Rays a lot, um, the Rays. In, in my opinion, don't have a solid five-man starting rotation. And so instead of trying to grow two or three young guys and kind of let them flail but learn, uh, they have now started putting uh, relievers in to start the game. So it started with Sergio Roma, who came in and threw uh, basically two innings uh, before you got a middle reliever in. And that middle reliever, in theory, could carry them to the fifth or the sixth. Then you let the rest of your bullpen kind of take over. Right. Um, very, very interesting. But the Tampa Bay Rays have made it pretty clear uh, that this year they're not in the business of growing starting pitchers. They're in the business of trying to grow their relievers. Um, and since it was already supposed to be a down year, maybe not a big deal. Right. Um, but I, I think this goes back to our earlier points that I think the the status of the starting pitcher in Major League Baseball is in serious jeopardy with what the Rays doing. I think it's fascinating what they're doing, but overall they're devaluing the impact of your aces. So you think of your Max Scherzers, you think of your uh, Clayton Kershaws. If for how much money those guys are making year in, year out, if I could come up with a platoon who's going to be mildly affected to get me to the middle innings one or two days out of my five-day rotation, yeah, why not go for it is what I am afraid your less competitive major league ball clubs could do. So I'm really interested to see if you've seen this, if you think it's it's something that's going to last, this is just a flash in the pan. I mean, I'm surprised Joe Madden didn't start this, to be honest. It seems like something so gimmicky, even he would buy into it. Um, but what's what's your opinion about what's what's going on down at the Trop? Yeah, I think it's actually pretty cool. And I know sabermetricians have been talking about this possibility for quite a long time. You have a reliever come in and start the game. So you have a two or three inning starter, and then you have your starter come in and finish the game. And I think the logic is sound. So sound, in fact, that you look at this and you you think, why hasn't anybody done this before now? To me, it's not gimmicky just because it doesn't conform with our normal you know, conception of the starter goes six to seven innings, and then you bring in a reliever for a couple innings, and then you have your closer come in in the ninth. You know, um, the uh, the the baseball writers uh, Sam Miller and Ben Lindbergh have a great book, which I highly recommend, called "The Only Rule Is It Has to Work." And the premise of the book is them going as analysts slash GMs to a small independent league baseball team in California called the Sonoma Stompers, and they encounter this this uh, mentality with the manager that they hire, where the manager says, I've identified this player as my closer and he has to pitch the ninth inning because the closer is the closer because he's the closer. Uh, in other words, you know, this, this baseball idea that doesn't matter who's coming to bat in the ninth inning, if it's the ninth inning and we need to lock down this win, you send in your, your, your closer, right? Your, your Mariano Rivera guy, the guy who co comes in the ninth and gets it done. And that's the only time he comes in. And we've started to move away from that recently. I mean, think of uh, think of Andrew Miller, right in 2016, that postseason, um, and really throughout the regular season too, when uh, Terry Francona would use Andrew Miller instead of as the the ninth inning guy because he was the best reliever. He would just use him in the high leverage thing. So if the heart of the order was coming up in the seventh inning and you really needed those outs, that's when you send in Miller to collect those outs. And I think what the Rays are doing is really just an extension of that idea. It's that you pitch pitchers. You, you send pitchers to the mound in the time that it's most advantageous for those pitchers to go to the mound. And so if you have, you know, if you have um, the uh, the easiest outs in the beginning of the game, in the first few innings, you send in your reliever to get those. Or if you have outs that the reliever would match well against, you know, righty, righty, lefty, lefty, whatever the case is, you send in your reliever, you get those outs and you just start backing those outs. Because at the end of the day, a baseball game is about getting 27 outs with more runs than the other team getting 27 outs can do, right? And um, because of that, you bank your 
your opposing team's outs early and you increase your probability of success. And then you bring in your starter who maybe doesn't have the gas to go six innings, but maybe that starter can give you four quality innings, see through the lineup one and a half times, and then you can bring in somebody else to, to close out the game. So to me, it makes a lot of sense. I, it, I don't see it as gimmicky. I just worry about where it could add to this parade of relievers problem that we've already talked about. You know, if this if this <laughs> descends into, um, you know, having, an, uh, you know, a pitcher and a half, uh, you know, an average of a pitcher and a half per inning, I think that's where we could we could see a problem. But for right now, I have no problem with what the Rays are doing. And they're also doing something pretty interesting in that they're um, in some cases, uh, like last night, for example, playing, you know, their pitchers out of position at first base. So. Um, they did this last night with Jose Alvarado. He came in uh, to uh, face Bryce Harper, I think, um, and then uh, and then came up uh, Anthony Rendon. Of course, Harper's a lefty, Rendon's a righty, um, but Alvarado just went to first base, um, and then the first baseman Jake Bowers moved from first to left. Um, so he brought in a pitcher to take the place of the left fielder. Um, so that he could do that. And the first pitcher, Jose Alvarado, stayed in the game at first base. So that that kind of stuff to me doesn't violate any any unwritten b- rules in baseball. It's really just an innovative way of using the lineups within the confines of the rules that Major League Baseball set up. And if it works, it works. And honestly, that's that's kind of interesting, right? You come to a game and you see a pitcher play first base. That's something you didn't think you would see. Um, so I'm all about it. Uh, and you know, ultimately, the Rays are dealing with a very low... Um, very low payroll and they're trying to find ways to be competitive if this helps them do that that's great they're right now 39 and 40 they are you know one game below 500 uh, and they're playing in a very competitive division the ale so whatever edge they can try to get i'm all for it sorry for the the long-winded answer there pete but um i think that's no i I think it's interesting and and to your point about making them more competitive i mean since they started this on the 19th they have the best era at 2.87 they have the lowest opponent batting average at 205 and lowest opponent on base percentage at 282 in the entire sport so gimmicky was probably a, a bad word for me to use it's it's just so interesting i i just worry from a watchability perspective there is something so interesting about baseball more than any other sport about how it's the ace first the top guy it's the max scherzers the clayton kershaws but i i'm just really really interested to see Nothing has been more set in stone in baseball history than the ace, right? Yeah. We remember prolific pitchers more than we remember creators outside of probably Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds. I mean, it's you, you think of your Nolan Ryans, you think of your Cy Youngs. You, Roger you Clemens, of, Greg Maddox. It, yeah. Exactly. So it's, I, I don't know, this, this is a, a much bigger topic about how baseball is adjusting and, and where they're, they're worried about losing fans. And yeah, I, I think it's it's probably a debate we need to loop in with the, the shift and how everyone wants Major League Baseball to come down on the shift and what to do about the shift. But at the end of the day, I think Major League Baseball thought when the shift came into existence, guys would figure out how to hit the other way and they hit. Right. Uh, guy, guys are swinging for the fences now or grounding out to first base when it's a shift against a lefty. Uh, and I mean... That, that's kind of on the hitter, not on the team who's doing it. So it's yeah. it's it's a very interesting bit. I strongly oppose any restrictions on the shift, by the way. I'm not I, like philosophically, I'm not even in favor of frequent shifting, but I am philosophically against the office of Major League Baseball dictating where each of the nine players play their position. I, I completely agree with you. I, I if if a team wants to put seven infielders on the right side, I say more more power to them. I mean, when I bunt to the third base, you're going to get burned, but then you're not going to shift me again. So I'm 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 totally in agreement with you on that. 
Well, Pete, should we uh, should we move to garbage time? Talk some college football real quick before we sign off. Let's let's do it. What's on your mind with college football this week? So uh, you actually brought this to my attention, but uh, Lane Kiffin's ten year contract at Florida Atlantic University is on my mind. It looks like Pete, you are in for another season all aboard the Lane Kiffin hype train. So Woo-hoo! congratulations to you, train. my friend. And not only one season, but actually ten seasons, ten seasons on the Lane Kiffin hype train. My question for you on this, Pete, is: Is this actually a ten year contract, or is this Lane Kiffin trying to make it look like he's fully committed to Florida Atlantic all the way. I think two sides of this, right? Lane Kiffin's notorious for not not honoring these commitments. He did not last long at Tennessee at all. He did not last long in Oakland. He did not last long at USC. He has not last, lasted long anywhere he's been. Um, so is this going to be an exception? Uh, on the other hand, though, he has this pretty good gig where he's a, uh, I don't know, maybe slightly above average coach at a uh, slightly, you know, a, a, or I guess a perennially below average school. So he has a chance to make an impact there. He certainly did last year. He has uh, a lot of supporters there because he's brought a lot of good success to the program. And he's in uh, Florida, you know, two miles from the beach in very fertile southern recruiting territory. So he has an opportunity to build a, a strong program there. So wh- what do you think is the 10 year gig for real? Or is this a stepping stone to show Power Five schools that Lane Kiffin is back? Ah, uh, I go with the latter. I I think I think he's going to be there a few years. I really do. As much as I enjoy the hype train, I think he is really enjoying being a big fish in a little pond, just like you said, where he isn't really having to fight Nick Saban uh, every year. Uh, he's not having to fight your Dabo Swinney's. He's not having to fight your West Coast powers with Chip Kelly coming up through the ranks. I I think he can kind of work on his image and his credibility as a coach because right. nothing has taken more of a beating in Lane Kiffin's life than his credibility. I mean, think of the way they fired him at USC. I mean, they didn't even let him get on the team bus. I'm sorry, at the, I think he had to do the sake and having that long-term and least in the probably ship. The buyout of this contract is to get what that uh, and And Lane Kiffin clearly knew what he was doing, and he obviously has a a pretty crack legal team as well. But it's not going to be hard for an SEC school uh, or a strong AB West Coast school to to really buy out of that contract and and get him out quickly. So I I think it was really the only option Lane Kiffin had. Uh, But he'll he'll stay for another two to three years. What what do you think here? Is he he he's not in it for ten? Right? We can agree on that. He's not in it for ten. No, I give him two more years minimum. I give him uh, four more years maximum. And then I think he's going to try to make a, a, a move to a power five. Let's see. He's done the SEC thing. Uh, he's done the Pac-12 thing. So maybe we see him trying to go to the Big Ten. Or maybe he'll try to try to do the SEC again if, if he'll be accepted. Maybe he's really just trying to get back to Tennessee ultimately. Although I don't, I don't have that much faith in Lane Kiffin. I, I think he is smarter than to return to the scene where he burn that fan base so bad i mean granted that fan base is so desperate i'll take him in a heartbeat but i think lane kiffin will only go to to a new school or a school who has fired him not one that he right. left willingly yeah fair enough do you have anything in college football before we wrap this up no that was that was the biggest news i am i am excited for late august early september but until then we got some good baseball and we have a great all-star game coming up here in dc which i am unfortunately not going to be at in person but i'm ready to watch it on tv i was going to ask yeah uh, okay We'll have to have uh, Josh Goldman, host of the pod, the podcast, go go in our stead. Yeah, we we should also have Josh do a little bit of a deep dive for us on baseball movies and give us some reviews because let's be honest, he knows a lot more about movies than we either should. of us. So we'll 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 set the podcast on that. If uh, if you haven't checked out the podcast yet, definitely, yeah, it's a great show. Josh and his wife Maureen are hosting this. They're running running down all things pop culture, and I've learned a lot by listening to it. They're really engaging. Have a great dynamic which I guess makes sense since, you know, they're married and all that. Um, 
I mean, it's not better than our dynamic, though, right? It's not better than us. Oh, no. No, nobody's better than this dynamic. <laughs> you know that. Uh, all right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Third String Podcast. Reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Uh, you know, are we right or wrong on pace, pace of play? Should there be a DH in the National League? Uh, is Lane Kiffin going to stick around? We'd love to hear your thoughts. So you can add us at Third String Pod, at Zach Crippen, at Pete underscore Laclede. You can also reach out to us, Zach or Pete at VernacularPodcast.com. That's not Zach or Pete at Vernacular. That's just, you know, Zach at Vernacular Podcast or Pete at Vernacular Podcast. But uh, we'd love to hear from you there. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Vernacular Podcast. And if you haven't already, you can go join our Third String Podcast group on the Vernacular Podcast Network page where we're starting to build our Third String community. So join that. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week. <laughs>